how to make money from your homestead, or if you don't have your physical homestead yet, but you are practicing homesteading skills, how to turn those into cold, hard cash. So on today's episode, which is number 151 of the Pioneering Today podcast, we are going to be talking exactly all about that. Because one of the many questions that I get asked, or one of the many questions I should say people struggle with, is having the funds to do homesteading. And many of you have the dream to have your homestead, once you get your land and your property and everything set up, to be able to work your homestead full time and not to have that outside day job is kind of the ultimate end goal and to make the homestead produce enough to take care of you and your family. So that's what we're going to be diving into today on this episode of the podcast. So I want to welcome you. If you're a brand new listener, you are in for a treat. And if you are a longtime listener, I am so glad that you are here with me. My name is Melissa K. Norris. I'm the author of The Made from Scratch Life and the book Handmade, and here on the Pioneering Today podcast is where we teach families how to grow, preserve, and cook their own food using old-fashioned skill sets and wisdom for a natural, self-sufficient home with or without the full-on homestead. Okay, so let's get right to it. Now, if you do a quick Google search, you can find lots of lists online on how to make money homesteading. But most of them are just a long bullet point of lists, and they don't really give you a lot of information on how to get started or just a little bit more in depth on how you would be doing that. So my goal is to provide you with the real life experiences of doing it and helping take out the overwhelm or giving you more of a roadmap. So we're going to be covering in today's episode, this is going to be a series. There's so much information to cover on this that we can't possibly pack it all into one episode. So this is going to be part one. So just stay tuned for the rest of this series. But today we're going to be covering the main areas of homesteading and how you can turn those into money. Now, I have to say that you're going to need to do individual research for your state and possibly your county as well. Because it can vary from state to state and even county on licenses you need if you're going to be operating as a business. And some of these are going to entail more than than others. And we'll get into that a little bit in this episode. If you now I'm not a business expert or coach, so I'm not giving you true business advice because you're going to have to do your research because every like I said, every state and even counties can differ on this. So you'll need to do your due diligence and your homework. But federal-wise, if you bring in more than $400 in a year, then you're supposed to claim that on your taxes. So there's going to be federal level when we're bringing in money, right? And then there's going to be state and even county levels too. But let's get to the fun part now that we've got that part out of the way. So how to make money homesteading from livestock. Number one, sell the meat. I know it's kind of obvious, right? But most animals, especially pigs, cattle, and chickens, which we raise enough of all of those animals to provide our family with 100% of our meat from them, meaning we don't have to buy them from the store. So I've got a lot of experience with those ones. But those animals specifically are herd animals. They do not do well by themselves. And honestly, we have found it just as easy to raise two or three pigs, cattle, chickens, 
as it is to raise one. And I would almost argue that it's easier because the animal is going to be a lot happier. They're going to be more healthy because they find their safety within a herd. You need a little bit more space for two cows than one. The same if you've got two pigs. The bigger the animal, the more space you need for each one that you bring in. So you don't need a whole lot more space to add in a few more chickens than just having one. And kind of the same thing with the pigs. We have to make their pens a little bit bigger, but not a whole lot bigger than when we just have the one for the two. There are a couple of ways to sell the meat from your animals that you're raising. One is you have your meat done at a USDA approved facility. So where we live to do that, which we don't do this option, but I do know people that do. So I'm going to share it with you. We would have to put our cattle into our stock trailer, our horse trailer, just as it have the dividers in it. And then we would have to haul them about close to two hours away from us to the facility that's a USDA approved. And then they would inspect the meat upon harvesting, upon butchering it and give it the approval of the USDA. And then we could bring that meat back with us. And then that way you can sell it just kind of like a grocery store would, right? So you would be selling like you could sell a package of a couple steaks, you could sell some roasts, you could do it more individualized, but you're going to have to have, of course, the storage space for all of that meat. So you're going to have to have a freezer, maybe several, depending upon how many animals you're doing. And then you're going to have to be dealing with keeping track and finding customers and selling all of those individual things of the meat. So I find that that's a lot more involved and it's going to take the most amount of work, which is why we have never went that route at all on our homestead. You're going to have to have, like I said, not just storing the meat, but looking into the legalities of how that meat is stored. Does it pass inspection or is it up to muster? What do you have to have at your house? You know, does someone have to come out and inspect everything for you to do that? You're truly operating a business that way because you're going to be tracking, having customers, you know, selling, how you're getting them the meat and all of that. So that's a lot more involved, but that is one route. And I do know people that do that route. The second way, and this is how we do our beef and our pork. And that is we have a local butcher and the butchers around here that we use and all of the other people that raise their own meat that I know of do this too. And so it's a mobile butcher. So they have got their shop and then they come out with, it's a big truck with a refrigerated unit on the back and they come out and they just come to the field or to wherever it is that you have got your animals and they kill them there. So they have what they call a kill fee. And so that's per head of animal that they charge so much. And so they do that part and then they put them in the truck. And then the truck goes to their actual butcher shop, and that's where they end up processing the meat fully. So they just do the kill part there on the property. The nice thing about that is the animal is in its normal surroundings, so there's not a lot of adrenaline. They're not scared because all of that affects the meat. And then you're not having to cart them you know, to a facility and get them in and out and, and everything. So that's the route that we use when we butcher our cattle. And the main reason we don't butcher our own cattle, at least not yet, is we don't have a refrigerated or temperature controlled area. And our temperatures here in the fall and the winter, 
we do get some, like we'll get snow some, not a huge amount, but we'll get some snow and we will have freezing temperatures, but especially when it comes to beef, you want to let it age, preferably at least 21 days, 14 at the bare minimum and at least 21 days, but that has to be in a controlled environment, right? And we don't have a stretch of those amount of days here where our weather stays at the correct temperature in order for us to do it. And we don't have a large enough refrigerator unit to hang an entire cow in order to do that. So that's why we use a local butcher. Now we have butchered our pigs before when we were just going to be doing a whole pig roast, but for sausage and ham and smoking, I don't have a smokehouse and I keep saying these things yet because it's someday I would love to be able to do that. And so would my husband, but it's just not where we're at at this moment in time. So we do know how to butcher the pigs, but to get the smoking and the bacon and all of that stuff, we don't have the equipment to do that yet. And that you're not going to, well, once it's smoked and in its salt curing, you then let it cure. But in the beginning, you don't let your pigs age hanging out like you do with your beef, totally different animal. And then the chickens, we do butcher and process those ourselves here on the homestead when we're doing our meat chickens. But anyways, back to the second way that you can sell the meat via the local butcher, this way. So what we do is the butcher comes and harvests the animal, and like I said, they take it to the shop for processing. And almost everybody that I know of in our area does this route. And then what they do if you are selling the meat, so if you're going to be selling the meat, is then... The farmer will give the butcher the name and phone number of the person who is going to be purchasing the meat and then how much of the pig or the beef they're going to be getting. And we did this before we started raising our own pigs. We did this with a gal in a neighboring town. She had a pig she was butchering. We bought half of it. She gave the butcher our name and our phone number and said they're going to take half of this pig. And then the butcher called us. And we told them how our cut and wrap order. So we told them how many pork chops that we wanted per package, how many pounds of sausage we wanted in each package, the flavor of the bacon, how we wanted the ham, all of that. So you really get to customize it, which is really nice compared to getting it to the store. And then the other nice part of it about this, especially for the, the gal that we were purchasing from, is we gave her the money. So the butcher gave her the hanging weight. So per pound. And so we gave her the money for the pig based on per pound price that she told us. So we paid her for that half a pig. Then when we go to the butcher to pick up the meat, when it's ready, we pay half of the kill fee because we were getting half of the pig. And then we pay them per pound, a cut and wrap fee. The butcher does not take the money for the farmer. That's done between them. The butcher just takes their fee for the kill fee and the cut and wrap from the person who's coming and picking it up. So that's how that works. But on the farmer's end, it makes it really nice because they're not having to deal with you know the cut and wrap and having all of that. And they don't have to worry about the USDA part because the butcher looks at the meat and, you know, make sure that their facility has to be inspected and, you know, up to date and meeting standards and all of that. So it's kind of nice because then the farmer doesn't have to worry or deal with that part of it, right? And most farmers that I know of, especially in our area, because that's where all my experience is, you can purchase a whole cow, a half a cow, or a quarter of a cow from them. Not all farmers will go down to a quarter of a cow, but when you're talking cattle, because they're so large, 
most will. There are a few that will only do half or whole, but most most of the ones that I've talked to go down to a quarter. But with pigs, usually you're buying the whole hog or you're buying half the hog. I've never known of anybody who goes down to a quarter with a pig of getting the meat. Number two, sell the eggs or milk. So remember, we're still on our livestock. So if you have hens, goats, or milk cows, you can look into selling the eggs and or the milk because I know we're not going to be getting milk out of the chicken, right? Out of the hens. But you know, <laughs> you know what we are. I'm combining those two together because we're looking at the byproduct, if you will. This can be great to do in times of excess when you or your family can't keep up with or consume it all. And it also can help offset feed costs. So depending on what your feed costs are, this will determine on if you're just going to be helping to meet those costs. Or if you've got enough excess to sell, you actually will be making income on it because that's what the whole purpose of this one is, right? Is to make your money homesteading. Now, your third option in regards to livestock is to sell the animals. You're not just limited to the meat and or the milk or eggs, depending upon what type of animal you've got. You can actually raise and sell the animals. But this is a lot more involved, and I want to be really clear, this is best done when you have done a lot of research on the different breeds, that you have good breeding stock, you have a really good understanding of which breeds offer which characteristics, bloodlines, confirmation, there's just so much when it comes to breeding good stock. And that's something that we're dealing with in our herd. And we don't raise and sell our animals off like that. We just raise ours for meat. But we can see when you use a different bull or you've got different cows and they throw different babies. And you can start to see within the bloodline and the confirmation which ones their calves one, they don't have any trouble birthing because that's really important. You're not using a sire or a bull in the case of cows that throws large headed calves because then they can get stuck when they're birthing and that can cause problems. You don't want to lose the baby and you don't want to lose the mom, right? Then when they actually have the calf, we've got two cows, different breeds. They were both bred by the same bull and they both delivered within a few weeks of one another. But the one, and they were both steers, so both the calves were males that we castrated because we don't run bulls on our property. And all of that, so same feed and everything, but from two different moms who were different bloodlines, different breeds there. And the difference in the size of those babies is just amazing. So the one, he is so much bigger than the other guy. And so now, of course, we're looking to get more of that bloodline and to not breed back that other cow because you can see you're getting so much more for the same amount of feed, same amount of time, all of that. So that's what I mean. You really want to understand a lot of things when it comes to breeding. You don't want to just breed just because you happen to have a cow perhaps and, and there's a neighboring bull or if you're doing artificial insemination and then just sell them just off the get-go. If you're going to be doing that, you want to make sure that you're breeding you know, good stock. And this is where we don't breed our own pigs. We purchase our piglets each year from a local breeder. He knows way more than we do about breeding. 
And I honestly have no interest in keeping a boar and I don't want to deal with pregnant sows or litters or piglets because I just want to go and grab the pig and pick it up when they're little. We usually get two or three and then raise that, raise those until they're butchering weight and then butcher them, which is not a year round process. The cattle, cows are pregnant about the same time as a woman. So when the cows are bred about, you know, nine, nine and a half months later, they're going to be delivering and then we're going to be raising it. It's a lot longer game before they're ready to butcher. So you've got at least two years, depending upon when they're bred and when the baby is born. And then when it comes a year, we always butcher in usually October. So it's going to depend on, you know, if that calf was born, you know, say in April, then come October, there's no point in butchering. It's not big enough yet. So then you'd be going a year and a half. So there's the timing on there. So with the cattle, it's at least two years, you know, from the time it's bred, that we're going to be able to butcher it and to get the money on it. But with your pigs, all of that is a lot shorter. So some people will do two litters a year off the same sow. And I don't want to be dealing with that. And there's no way that we could be using that much pork, using that much meat if we were raising them up for meat. So I prefer to use a local breeder. So he is, we're purchasing our pigs from him. But that's one route. And so that's all he does is he raises the pigs and sells the piglets. And then that is his income. So he's making an income from that. We're doing it in different avenues. But that's one way that you can go. And most of the time when people are selling animals, not always, but most of the time, they sell them when they're young to avoid the cost of feeding and raising them if they're not planning on selling the meat or butchering themselves. So usually especially when you come to think, you know, like with litters, as soon as they're old enough to be weaned is when they'll be selling them. Okay, number four on making money from homesteading with your livestock. That's to sell the fur. This is going to depend upon the animal, obviously, but if you have fiber-producing animals such as angora rabbits, alpacas, llamas, certain breeds of sheep, goats, you can shear them and sell their fur to make wool and yarn. Or I, I know people who do it both ways, actually. We have one friend that they have llamas. And so once a year, they shear them and they sell just the raw fur and someone else cards it, spins it, makes it into yarn and all of that. Then I know other people who have their own animals. And so they will harvest that and then they will spin that and they will turn that into yarn and then they will either make some products with it themselves from that or they'll also sell the yarn. So there's some different ways that you can go with that. You could also look into selling your cow hides. So if you're butchering a lot of cattle and you've got the cow hides, generally speaking, it's a easier process and you're going to have a larger market easier to sell if you're doing the fur for wool or spinning, right? And I should say, we have actually never kept our cow hides and we haven't tanned them. It's not something that we've done yet. We've talked about it, but we just haven't done that. So if you have a mobile butcher coming, they will take the cow hides with them. But if you want that, you can ask for it and they will leave it for you. But because most people aren't tanning them and dealing with it, they do take that with them when they leave. On from the livestock, how to make money homesteading from the land. So tip number five, sell the produce. 
There are multiple ways that you can do this, from a farmer's market booth, a mini CSA. So CSAs are community-supported agriculture, and that is where people will pay the farmer, the gardener, a set amount for the month, and then that gardener, farmer, delivers them fresh produce every single week. And usually that's done throughout whatever the growing season is in your area around here. It's usually like May through September that's done. And then another thing that you can do, and this is probably the easiest, is just set a little stand or sign at the end of the road right at the driveway of your homestead. This works the best if you've actually got a road that gets some traffic. So if you're way out in the boonies, it might not work so well. But I know lots of people will do that to set up a sign just out along the roadway. A lot of people will just use kind of the honor system. They'll put a sign and have so much sitting out there and then they'll have a, a cash box. You could also have like a little bell if it was close to the house. I mean, there's different things you could do. Just kind of keep an eye on it. You could have someone sitting out there and manning it if you wanted during, you know, a busy, the roadway is really busy and there's a lot of people, but most people will have the sign out there and they'll kind of watch from the house when they see someone pull up, then they'll go out and help them. But that's one way. It's kind of like a glorified lemonade stand, right? Another option on selling the produce, if you've got berries or an orchard, you can always go the you pick route and charge people by the pound of how much they pick. You might not be able to get out there and harvest everything yourself, or maybe you've harvested everything that you need for your family for the year and you've got that excess, but you don't have time to go out there or they'll want. You're like, I'm done picking. Then you can let other people come in and say, I'm going to charge you this much per pound. Go ahead and pick. And then they pick, then you weigh it and charge them when they leave. Here's another option that I personally know people have done, and that is to sell the excess to a grocery store. I don't know about doing this with chains, but I know if you've got a smaller independent grocery store, a lot of them, especially our local grocery store, when I say local, it's about 10, 10, 12 miles away from our house, but they will do that with local farmers in the summertime. They will bring in produce from the local farms and they have, it's really fun. They have a big sign that says this is from whatever farm it's from and you can purchase it right from the grocery store. And of course they're purchasing wholesale from that farmer and then selling it at retail. But if you're that farmer, that's one avenue. Another thing that I've seen done instead of doing it that way in a grocery store is even gas stations. So if it's a gas station that has, you go inside and it's got a little bit of stuff in there and a little bit of produce, especially with berries, they will kind of do it on a commission. I've seen this done. Our local gas station, unfortunately, went out of business and closed. Oh goodness. I think it's like three years now. But prior to that, they would do that with berries. You would go in and they would have the little pint-sized baskets of berries sitting on the counter and you could buy those. And they would either purchase them wholesale from just local people who had picked them and brought them in, or they would do like a commission, like they would sell them or whatever, which is kind of the same thing. But you could come back if they hadn't all sold and pick up the berries too when you're doing the commission rate and give you a percentage of each sale. And I've seen that not with just berries, but I've seen it with herbs, flowers, all kinds of things. Okay, tip number six, sell the plants. If you already start your own plants from seed, consider sowing extra to sell tomato starts, squash starts, onion sets, herb starts, anything that people purchase from a garden center to plant in their garden, you could grow from seed and sell those starts in the spring and late summer. So for people doing a fall garden, then 
typically your cooler weather crops are what you'd be purchasing about this time of year, depending on your gardening season. So there would be two opportunities during the year for you to do that. And of course you could do it with flowers as well, because a lot of people in the spring will go and buy a lot of flower starts. They're not growing them all from seed themselves. So if you have got the space to do that and the setup, you're going to need, if you, you don't even have to have a greenhouse. I start all of my tomato seeds and all of my peppers and everything indoors under a grow light. It's a four foot grow light in the corner of our living room and they grow gangbusters. Now, if I wanted to do that on enough to sell to other people, I'd have to get a few more grow lights. And you may even think about getting a small heated greenhouse in order to do that. If you were doing it on a larger scale, looking to make a full income or if not necessarily a full income, a decent amount of profit from it, you're going to need more volume. But that's another option. Tip number seven, make items from the produce. You'll need to look into cottage laws if you plan on doing this publicly, but you can put your produce to work for homemade fermented sauerkraut, kimchi, jams, jellies, salsas, tomato sauce, you know, anything that can be canned. Depending upon the scale you're doing this and where you're selling it, you may have to use an approved kitchen and have your food handler's permit. And of course, when it comes to canning, you're going to want to make sure you are taking care to do so with updated processing and tested recipes and techniques that you really understand all of the things that have to do with canning safety and the recipes that you're using and how you're doing it are all up to date. If home canning is something that you are interested in and you want to make sure you're doing it safe, I have a free home canning safety class. It's one hour. I walk you through everything that you need to know and some of the major mistakes that I see being shared online via Pinterest or social media that can actually be really dangerous. Canning is amazing. We can hundreds and hundreds of jars of food every year. And it's actually pretty easy once you understand what you need to know in order to stay safe, including using that pressure canner and not being afraid of it, but making sure that you're doing everything correctly and understanding how it operates and the steps that you can't skip and where you can buy yourself a little bit of time. And there are some steps that you can skip safely, but not a whole lot of them. So you can sign up and watch that classic said totally free one hour Go to melissaknorris.com slash canning class. All one word, no spaces, all lowercase, melissaknorris.com forward slash canning class. Or you can even go to today's show notes, which we always have a full written blog post for you with resource links for every podcast episode. You can find this one at melissaknorris.com forward slash 151 because this is episode number 151. Tip number seven is to sell baked goods. There are many people who want homemade but don't have the time or the skill sets. And sometimes it's people don't have the skill sets and just because they haven't had the chance or someone to teach them, they don't want the skill sets. They don't want to make it themselves. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, that's probably not you. But if you're wanting to make money, that can be a very good thing. Turn those extra zucchini into home-baked zucchini bread, muffins, cakes, and offer those bad boys up for sale. I know one lady locally 
who every Thanksgiving and Christmas, she makes homemade pies. So you have to order in advance, but she makes homemade pies and sells them just for Thanksgiving Day and for Christmas, which is a great time when a lot of us need more money for the holidays. And you could do it all year round, but she does it just for those days. That's the only time that she does it. Number eight, lease some of your property. Maybe you're not ready to dive into raising your own livestock or even putting in a full berry patch just yet, but if you have extra acreage or even as little as a half acre or maybe even a quarter acre, you may be able to lease that section of your homestead to someone else. I have neighbors who lease, I'm guesstimating, I've never actually measured it, but eyeballing it wise, about a half acre of their property to an organic farmer who raises blueberries in part of their side pasture. There's so many options too on this. You can create a deal where you're paid in cash, where you get some of the harvest, ideally both. And then I know other neighbors who lease part of their pasture for someone else to raise their cattle on, and then they get part of the beef in exchange. If you go the lease route, make sure that you have a written agreement and you probably should consider if you need insurance, who is responsible for what, how long you're going to lease, what the clause for termination is. If you decide you don't want to lease anymore, have all of that written out in black and white and not a bad idea to have a lawyer look over the terms because it's going to be a contract between you and whoever you're leasing with. So you're just going to want to make sure that you're both covered you know, both parties are covered and clear understanding all written out. So there's no chance of confusion later down the road. Next up is how to make money homesteading from your kitchen. Now we did talk about produce and baked goods and that's kind of from your kitchen too, but there's lots of different ways that you can make money as well. Of course, some of the things that come to mind is making homemade soap. Lots of Homesteaders have that skill set. They'll make homemade soap and then sell them. You can do it online. You can do it at farmer's markets. There's so many options for selling non-perishable kitchen items. Homemade candles. You can do homemade beeswax candles and mason jars. You can do soy candles. I've got tutorials up on the blog. So in the resource section, I will link if you're curious about making your own homemade candles. And I've got a guide to making your own homemade soap. If those are things that you're wanting to look at, then there's making homemade herbal infused oils that you can then turn into different balms and creams. I know a lot of people who will travel around to little local, like local farmers market and craft fairs and have booths with all of this, and they sell that. I know people who take their homemade natural cleaners that they're making and sell those as well to people who just for whatever reason, like I said, they don't know how to make them or they don't want to make them. They just would rather purchase them. So there's lots of things, almost anything that you're making on your homestead and that you're using, there's probably somebody who would want to purchase it and not make it themselves. Now, as I said at the beginning, depending upon what it is, you're going to have to look in and make sure that you're doing everything kosher wise and following procedures and stuff for operating a business. And each individual thing has different things that you're going to need to look at, especially when it comes to labeling and things when you're doing things as a business model and selling it to the public or selling it to customers versus just using it in your home. 
There's going to be labeling laws depending upon the product and different things like that. So you're going to have to do your due diligence, but these are all options. And I know people personally who are doing these and making money doing it from their homestead. So this has been part one. Now, if you've got more questions, I would love to see them. Make sure you can go to the show notes, melissakinoris.com forward slash 151 for this episode. You can leave a review. And if you've got some more questions, you can message me on social media. But I would love to know your questions because we're going to be having further in this series. What I'm going to be talking about next week is how we took different things and grew kind of how to test and the way that I did everything on our homestead to grow the income from the homestead in order to quit my day job. So I'm going to give you tips on that. So we'll be actually talking a little bit more about the business aspect and how you do all of that and get everything set up. If you enjoyed this episode, I highly encourage you, whatever, if you're listening to this on an app, be it iTunes, Stitcher, whatever it is, to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode. I know I have my favorite podcast episodes and I am subscribed to them. So as soon as they publish with a new episode, it's there waiting for me. As soon as I check the app, I don't have to go and look it up. It's just there and we're ready to go. That also means you won't miss any of the good stuff. Now, if you are new or you haven't subscribed yet, I have two podcast episodes that you may want to check out. Episode number 59, which is 10 ways to afford homesteading when you're broke. Episode number 60, and that's four ways to make money homesteading when you're broke. So how to afford it, how to get started. And then how you can make some money homesteading when you don't have a lot of cash. And I'll link to those in the show notes. Okay, guys, on to our verse of the week. We are in 1 Samuel chapter 17. And I'm going to read you a couple of verses. The first one is 1 Samuel 17 verse 39. And David girded his sword over his armor. Then he tried to go, but could not, for he was not used to it. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I'm not used to them. And David took them off. Then we're going to skip ahead just a little bit in the story, and we're going to go to verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the ranks of Israel, whom you have defied. And many of you will recognize this is the story of David and Goliath from the Old Testament. But as I was reading that, and the reason that I wanted to share that is I was reading through the story of David trying on Saul's armor and like, no, this is not going to work. And David went out using the tools, which was his slingshot and a rock, which is how he took down Goliath that he had used when he was herding the sheep for his father. And what I love about that is we all have our strengths. God has given each of us either God-given abilities and talents or gifts, or he has put us in situations, in jobs, maybe it's your upbringing, like mine was the way I was raised, where you develop skill sets. Mine happened to be homesteading. David's was using a slingshot and a rock. But God uses your natural skills or the skills that you have, what you already have, he can turn and magnify those and will help you to use those to do great things when your heart is right 
and you are doing it for the right reasons and for his honor and glory. And I think that's so important because in today's world, it is so easy for us to look at everything else. And a lot of times it's the success or the things that other people are doing and feel like maybe we're not quite enough. Maybe we're not adequate. Maybe we're lacking. And it gets really sticky when we try to do what other people are doing and those aren't our skill sets. And yeah, I'm kind of talking from personal experience here. So it's so important to remember that God gifted you with the skills that you need. And if you need new ones, then he will help teach them. But to use where your strengths are and who you are and know that God put you exactly where you need to be and you have what you need from him if you just focus on him and ask him to help you use what he's already given you. Okay, guys, I can't wait to be back here with you next week for part two. And I look forward to reading everything that you have to see. And remember, for the canning class and all of the links, you can grab those at melissaknorris.com forward slash 151. I hope you have a fabulous week. And I can't wait to hear about ways that you're earning money from your homestead or which way you are going to try. Bye for now.